Fengore And sometimes a little more My Bloody Podcast <laughs> Welcome to My Bloody Podcast, your hopefully go-to horror podcast where we talk about everything horror going on in entertainment. I'm your host, Preston Barta with the Denton Record Chronicle and FreshFiction.tv, and uh, we got a good show in store for you guys today. Uh, we recorded this initially uh, about two weeks back, just as my co-host, Brian Kluger, went on his honeymoon to uh, St. Lucia uh, with his new bride and. uh I went to his wedding. It was wonderful. Uh, it was not exactly the X-rated, R-rated, NC-17 rated affair that uh, we all expected it to be, uh, as we were making jokes about him having a salo cake and uh, what else, like greaser strangler, human centipede ceremony. It was not like that at all. Uh, it was actually very sweet and lovely, and it was just so great to see uh, Brian and his new wife Farah so happy together and uh so we had a good time my wife and I went and just enjoyed hanging out dancing drinking old fashions and uh seeing people we haven't seen in quite some time so it was a lot of fun and I'm so happy for him so he'll be back um either this week as we might double up on episodes or uh probably next week but the next episode he's on here anyway so uh, this week we are talking about uh, Child's Play. I know it's been a little bit. I apologize. Uh, things just been going on in life, but uh, the movie's still in theaters. You can still catch it, and uh, if you've seen it, this is all the more interesting to you because this discussion that we're going to have today for our feature presentation, uh, we're going to get into some spoiler territory and have fun tearing it apart and uh, getting into the nitty-gritty details and just seeing what works what doesn't work and um so the two gentlemen that i have on today for that is uh matt donato of we got this covered and slash film he writes all over the place bloody disgusting uh follow him on twitter look him up matt donato and uh you can keep up with all his writings everywhere but you should read his stuff he's great he's great um i think i talk a lot about in this review um about how great his review for the for child's play is and so that if you start there you just work your, trickle your way down and find some other great stuff by him and uh, of course we again this week we have uh mr james cole clay of freshfiction.tv on here with us this week as well so we're gonna have uh, child's play as our feature presentation get into some a little bit of horror news which is uh, a couple of weeks ago and then uh bloody recommendations so um yeah good stuff and uh and we'll begin here with uh quick get to know you with uh, matt donato and then we'll move on to horror news so keep it here at my bloody podcast it was at this moment that he knew he fucked up uh, I'm glad to finally have you on because I think I've asked you, uh, I don't know, probably like a year ago or something like that, and I'm just glad that we could finally make it happen. 
I think it's the ongoing joke of getting on this podcast and also hanging out whenever I'm in Austin. And we're always like, this is going to be the time. We're just going to hang out in Austin. And we never make that happen. So yeah. I'm glad we can actually have some time to talk. We have yeah, good five-minute discussions in between movies at Fantastic Fest. That's all critics get these days. Can you pinpoint where you were born as a horror fan? Uh, maybe not the first horror movie you saw, but maybe the one that just made you feel romantic about the genre? Yeah, um, I was a late bloomer, we'll say, in the horror genre, and even just cinematic appreciation itself. Uh, growing up, I didn't have the parents who were really into movies. I wasn't the kid that would get to sneak out you know, past midnight and watch slasher flicks after midnight and stuff like that. So I didn't really grow up watching horror movies at all. I was actually a pretty nervous kid, pretty anxious kid. I stayed away from anything scary and anything that would be like daring or could you know be dangerous to me. So fast forward into like my college career, that's really when I started getting into horror, into cinema. I went to uh, Hofstra University, which is a big communication school. I lived with a film major, and he was one of my friends from high school too. So we would just talk about movies every day, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm a business major, and I'm kind of going like, all right, I'm kind of bored. Like, you know, this is all just numbers and crap like that. And talking to my film major friend every day, it was kind of like, you know, just getting more and more interested in movies. And this is the day of Netflix and the blockbuster, even when you could uh, get DVDs through blockbuster uh, mail. And I just started devouring horror movies that way. It was the genre that I never got into. It was the genre that always escaped me. And I just started loving it. So it, it was one of those things where... Again, later in life, I guess I went back to horror because it was the one thing I avoided my entire life, and I kind of wanted to like do that full circle and come back and grow as a human, mm -hmm. and in doing so, I just became a fucking horror addict. Or sorry, am I allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah, you're good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I just became a horror addict in the realm of that, and I can say the one movie that really pinpointed and shoved me in the direction of loving horror tremendously was uh, REC or REC, however you want to call it the Spanish found footage film. And I only say that because at the time, you know, I, I think I was right around paranormal activity where that came out and paranormal activity scared the crap out of me. It was like this low budget movie, but still so well done and still so well done with the scares. And I watched Rex or REC and I just had these thoughts of like, okay, at this point in my life, I was just watching movies, but quote-unquote watching wreck it became more than entertainment it became this thing that i was just involved in and engrossed by and that was when i realized that movies can be more than just simple entertainment so that especially that film number one it scared the crap out of me number two it just hooked me immediately and number three it really did birth my love for like critical thinking and horror as well do you find that like now that you really consider yourself a horror fan that you're having discussions with other friends and they're saying, Hey, have you seen this yet? Have you seen this yet? And are you just like going out there watching horror films all the time now? Because like I, Brian, my co-host, like he is the, the expert um, on the genre and he'll just give me a recommendation, uh, like a text and say, Hey, have you seen this yet? And he's like, man, I can't believe you haven't seen this yet. And I just feel like, overwhelmed but are you uh finding yourself doing that now where you're uh constantly uh looking for new sources to kind of like feed the machine so to speak yeah you know and one of the things about 
not loving horror growing up or, you know, just not embracing horror growing up, I guess I would say, is the fact that I haven't seen a lot of the, the deep cut classics. Right. I've done my homework as well as I can over the years. And, you know, as a film critic, you know, what we do, it's so hard to find time for the movies that we're not either getting paid to write about or we're assigned to write about. Uh-huh. So for me, it's like every little waking moment that I might have that extra two hours to pop a movie in for entertainment. Yeah. It's going to be a horror film. It's going to be something I've never seen before. And I'm always constantly trying to fill my blind spots. Uh, but I would say also for anything that's ever come out in the last seven years for horror, uh, I would say about that. Um, I've been, Become that person who's like, haven't you seen this yet? Have you seen mm-hmm. this yet? Because I've devoted myself to horror so hard that I, I don't even know where I find some of these movies. I, every week, I'm just trying to find every little thing that comes out. And my way of keeping up with the horror genre and kind of like giving back at this point is trying to find those little gems as they come along. So if it's within the last decade, I'm the one hounding people. If it's before that, and you know, let's say realistically anything like before the 90s, I'm the one that is going to my friends going like, all right, I need to fill all my blind spots. How are we doing this? And, you know, the horror community itself, you just go on horror Twitter and just pump a tweet out like, hey, need something weird from this year or something like that. And you've got like 50 recommendations. Mm. Well, we're happy to have you on, but uh, I feel like the next uh, news item or the news I- first news item that we're doing is for Fantasia and the, the, the final wave of films have uh, come out. And so, You've been to Fantasia, right? Yeah, I go every year. Uh, I'm four years running, and I can't wait to go back this year. What is the atmosphere like at that film festival compared to other ones that you've been to? It's more of a fantastic fest. It's definitely a genre haven. It's definitely primed for networking and you know to gather horror fans together and have this experience. And I say it's a little... It's a little lesser than Fantastic Fest in the overwhelming sense that you, you know, Fantastic, you have all these movies. There's how many slots a day? We're at five slots a day. Right. And there's like five movies to pick for each slot. So I feel like Fantastic Fest can turn into like a bit of this and like kind of overwhelming sensation of, oh my God, I have to see everything, but how do I? Where Fantasia is brilliant because number one, they don't do Midnighters. Number two, there's a bar picked where it's kind of like the hub of Fantasia where you get to go when all the movies are done. And they only have, I think it's like three or four slots during the day and only two movies to pick from. So they make it very easy to watch movies, watch what you want to see. And it's just such an enjoyable, a little more laid back, but way more fun in the sense of every time I go, it's just all my friends getting together like summer camp and nerding out about horror movies after we watch like two a day or something like that so i really like the festival for that and montreal's beautiful city you get to see the city a little bit with that free time it's it's worth the trip for you guys i I gotta i gotta pump that out there is there uh i've been meaning to go but uh i think uh next year is going to be the year for me so i'm good man inching towards that way yeah it looks cool Canada's a good place, man. They're so nice up there, so I, I really oh, like it. They're lovely, and they got lovely. poutine, so it's like yeah, nice absolutely. poutine. I'm, I'm in heaven over there. Tim Hortons, I'm down. <laughs> good old Tim Hortons. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Is there anything in the these uh, new films, this new uh, wave that you're excited about? I mean, there's plenty if we want to dive into that. Sure. You know, the, 
opening night of Sadaka, we're getting a new Ring Ringu movie from the actual source, you know, not an American remake. So that's pretty exciting. I've seen The Lodge already, so I can just say. So, oh, go ahead. I have I have some questions about that movie, and I, I thought it was really strange. I was at a screening for Pet Cemetery like three months ago. I just went to a regular just during the day uh, at the Alamo, and they had a trailer for that movie, and I think they released it too early because it was back in April. I'm not okay. sure. And I just thought it was like really strange. By the, so, if, have you seen the trailer for the movie? And if so. Does it give away too much? Because I inadvertently saw it. Um, I don't think it gives away too much in the sense that it's going to ruin the movie. I like okay. the te- the teaser they put out today is way better because it's like twenty okay. seconds. Um, cool. I you're still going to enjoy the movie if it's your kind of thing. It's definitely a slow burn. The trailer definitely gives you a sense of what to expect. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think all trailers give away too much these days. They that's do. that's just that's my ongoing issue. It's it's a marketing poll, and I know they have to do what they have to do to get butts in seats, especially for movies that, you know, this is neon. It's probably not going to go the super wide route, so they got to do what they can. Um, but yeah, you should be okay, I'll say. Okay, good. Yeah, it's just, man, for so many years, I went not watching trailers, and then I, sometimes I just have to give up. Like, I was I was trying to avoid the Midsommar trailer to the yeah. point where I put my ears and my, my fingers in my ears and closed my eyes in the theater, but then I just felt ridiculous, and so it's tough. So I... My main thing with that movie i'm just so looking forward to it It seems like such a tease and uh, the poster is really cool really enticing it's i just can't wait to see it and i hope it's cold outside when i do so i was gonna say it won't be a fantasia but i hope when it comes in like, <laughs> when does it come out early november fall? i think yeah 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 so that's gonna be good have you seen the art of self-defense that's playing there i did not i missed that at two festivals Okay, well, definitely see that. And then another one, last one I had a question about was another Jesse Eisenberg movie, Vivarium. Are you familiar with this film? And, like, are you going to see this or anything like that? So here's the other thing about Fantasia. It's three weeks long. I'm only going to be there. Yeah, it's a massively long festival. And they bring press out in waves sometimes. Or, like, you know, you can go whenever you can go. So I'm actually going to be there for the middle weekend, which is Frontier's which is a little more fun because that's where projects are being sold. That's where a lot of filmmakers come out and just try to do like marketing and whatnot. So hopefully I get that middle section of like, I know I'm not going to get Sadako because that's the opening night film, but I hope that I get something like Vivarium, which played can um, or the Samara weaving uh, movie ready or not. I hope something like that will play in that middle range because it's still a weekend. It's still a pretty big weekend and they're at least going to have one or two big uh, shots there. But yeah, uh, Vivarium should be interesting from what I've heard. Obviously I did not see it. I do not make it out to can or con, sure. however, however you pronounce it. But Eisenberg makes really interesting choices uh, about the uh, over any film he kind of takes. So I'm, I'm here for it. Right on. Yeah, that's cool. It's really cool to get a sense of it. I had no idea it was that long. Yeah, it's crazy long. That's the whole thing. Like, you have to pick when you go. Uh, like, one year, I went during Frontiers. Or, I take it back. No, I went during opening week, and what they did is, for some reason, they played everything that played Tribeca seemed to play when I was there, so I'd seen all the genre movies. Wow. So, I shit you not, I think, I maybe saw one movie a day while I was there, <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> alright, see one movie, and then I had the entire rest of the day to myself, and it was, it was beautiful. Right on, very cool. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, if anyone 
is listening to the podcast and is looking for recommendations. I mean, there's two I'll just throw out as well. Uh, there's one a movie called Porno, which is just batshit insane. It's a haunted movie theater, and basically the theater workers find a satanic porno reel and they play it mm-hmm. and awaken a curse that basically they're all Christian virgins and it awakens this curse that turns them horny we'll say it's not as immature as i'm making it sound and it's actually really bloody and it's a really fun midnighter so i do want to throw that one out there and then also there's a movie called harpoon which is basically people trapped at sea on a yacht kind of vessel and they go a little crazy we'll just say and that's all i'm gonna say about it and yeah i I think those are two ones that people might not know about and if they're looking for recommendations at fantasia I would throw those two out there. Brian actually brought up porno to me. Played at uh, South by Southwest. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, I did. And uh, I regret not seeing it. Yeah, because it, it looked cool. Like, I was looking at the page and the poster's fucking killer. Yeah, that, that artwork, uh, cartoonish kind of poster. Yeah, yeah it works. It's incredible. Cool. All right, well, that's uh, Fantasia. Uh, moving on, we have, um, I guess, in the wake of the documentary on Shudder, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, uh, which Cole saw, and I believe he talked about on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, So now the same producers are once again coming together for all new documentary that will focus on the, I guess, the past, present, and future of queer horror in cinema. And so uh, according to the actual information that we got from the email, uh, it's going to be a film that examines the coded, sometimes problematic depiction of LGBTQ characters in films like Sleepaway Camp, High Tension, Jennifer's Body, and it will chart the course of queer subjects and creators in the horror genre from the silent era through the present day. Um, so, uh, Cole, since you've seen Horror Noir, History of Black Horror, I don't know if you've seen it too, Matt, but uh, what, how do, do you, you guys really feel about this? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I assume that you have. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, this sounds amazing in every way. I, I got my eyes open to, um, queer horror from one of our professors, a really tough professor. Yeah. Uh, Preston and I studied at the same film program and, uh, this professor in question had this class just, you know, queer horror. Mm-hmm. I think it was queers and horror, I think is what he called it or something. And he, he's a brilliant, brilliant professor. Tough. Harry Benshoff. Yes. Harry Benshoff. Shouts out to Harry Benshoff who, uh, Gave me shit for going to a, having a film festival press badge while I was still in college. Not to boast myself up, but he belittled me in front of the class. It was so embarrassing. But uh, but to that, I mean, there's so much context to that. And, you know, the fear of that, you know, just at least in America alone, the fear of like how LGBT were, LGBTQ were othered, you know. And there's so many there's so many films of, about the other. And there's so much expression and so much life and so much to embrace when it comes to that. I, I try to focus on that some in my writing. I really like to have it focus on the culture at large. And this film's going to do that, and you're going to have a, a really intellectual talk. And I think that is so exciting. And to me, just give us a series of this. Give us like 10 of these. Who cares? Just release two a year. And I mean, it sounds great. And I assume it's the same filmmakers, right? Uh, no, it's not. It's just oh, it's, not. it's the same producers. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, so the filmmaker is uh, Sam Weinman, who's been working on some shorts that are actually going to go to Shutter as well. But again, he's, you know, again, in the realm of the LGBTQ um, world, 
in large, yeah, that is getting more and more, I, I guess, press and, you know, what it deserves on the horror market. And I, again, I echo everything Cole has just said. I, I can't wait to see this because horror noir, you know, it opened eyes. It was entertaining. It was everything that a documentary should be. And it gave relevance to a topic that everyone knew needed more exposure and everyone mm-hmm. knew existed, but no one kind of wanted to do anything about it. So, you know, horror noir just came out of nowhere. It's like, yo, we have to have this discussion. Like, this just has to be out in the open. And I really hope that this is what, not even that I hope, I know this is what um, Shudder's LGBTQ documentary is going to be. And, you know, this, like I said, the same producers are in place, different filmmakers, but I trust that it's going to be the same kind of in-your-face kind of teaching, but still entertaining documentary that is going to open eyes to this. Right. Uh, not to jump too ahead, but do you, is there like any questions or issues with uh, horror that you think would make a great subject for a documentary from the same producers? That's a good one. Hmm. I mean, I would love just to keep going through the cultural aspects and, you know, look at different sections of the world and how they're represented in horror and how mm-hmm. they're not represented. I mean, you know, we all... I think we all saw the curse of La Llorona, right? Right. I have. Like, that's the thing. We get these Americanized versions of other people's stories and other people's boogeymen when we can have such better cultural representations, mm-hmm. you know, from the actual filmmakers. And they're doing that and they exist. And it's kind of like, you know, how do we get past this Americanization and whitewashing of topics that should just be allowed to breathe and live as they are. And how do we stop this tokenization? Because, you know, it's not just an African-American. It's every race has their own tokenization in horror. And I I think that would be interesting. They just keep going right down the line. Well, there you go. You can make out the check to Matt Donato. (laughs) Yes. Phil, if you're, if you're listening to this, which I know you're not, but still, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're really selling this short. Um, we're going to move on to our next section, um, which is, you know, normally for uh, my bloody questions, uh, we have a question that's related to the future presentation, which would be child's play. Uh, we've done the original child's play in the past, but, uh, we, we would also like put it out there on Reddit and like read some of the Reddit answers. But since I'm not the Reddit guy, uh, I get all my Reddit information and things like that from my friend Brian and a couple other friends. I'm not really involved in it. And so uh, we're not going to go that route. And so what I want to do is there's a couple of, there's two films in particular that I want to bring up that we've talked about on this podcast in the past, uh, actually the past two weeks. Uh, The first one is uh, that I want to revisit is the dead don't die. Um, Cole was on the podcast for that. I've read your review, Matt. And, but I, the reason why I want to bring it up is because I was listening to uh, the Slash Film cast. And on the Slash Film cast, uh, which, uh, you know, David Chin, Devinder Hardwire, and Jeff Kanata, uh, this week they reviewed Toy Story 4, but they really, uh, briefly discussed uh, The Dead Don't Die. And their guest on there was Matt's friend, Christy Puchko of Pajiba. And on the show, if you, uh, Matt, have you listened to it yet? Oh, I have not. Okay. So. On the show, she mentioned someone that I can only assume is you, Matt. Uh, she said uh, it's someone that she loves very deeply and know and who knows a lot about horror movies. So I, I probably think that I'm safe assuming that that is you. Go ahead, continue. Okay. 
So she said that you said the film doesn't have any understanding of zombie movies, which she defended with the film's many references to George Romero's work. Um, the use of zombies metaphorically and how we as a society don't seem to act on any of the world's issues and uh, how it makes us zombies until, um, you know, these issues are literally eating us in the face. And so I'm curious to know, Matt, if you and uh, feel free to chime in, Cole, because I, uh, I know your feelings about the film, too. But uh, if your feelings at all have evolved having heard this or uh, any of the discussions that you've had about the film with anybody or with her specifically, do you recognize the other end of the spectrum or uh, what do you have to say in response to what she said? Yeah, no. And okay. So maybe saying it doesn't understand what a zombie movie is, isn't the right wording. And I'm trying to think when I said that we have a Slack channel, I might've just said that offhand and it was kind of like an impassioned thing. What I was more or less angry about is yeah i I totally get that that was a romero movie i totally understand every reference that was thrown in there the fact of the matter is though we've seen things exactly like this Mm -hmm. since romero has been making these movies filmmakers nowadays how many how many decades has that been okay so you remade a romero movie but romero's done it 10 times better he's done it with 10 times more social commentary and he's done it with actual you know story and stakes and this just felt so boring. It was like he wanted to make a Romero movie and pay homage. I, I get that. But we've been evolving this genre for so long. And all you could come up with was a one-to-one representation that brought nothing new to the table. And the oddball stuff he throws in there falls hilariously flat. And I say hilariously as I was just looking at the screen going, how? How did you think this was ever humor? No, no, no. So I get what she's saying. I, in my review itself, I actually point out the Romero stuff. I point out that, you know, this is a zombie film that we've seen a billion times over and it doesn't want to be different. It does absolutely nothing different. So maybe it wasn't that it doesn't understand what a zombie movie is. It just didn't understand how to evolve with zombie movies and want to do something that actually stands on its own versus, hey, I made a George Romero movie. Okay kudos here's your gold star 20 other thousand people have done that in the last year alone Mm -hmm. see i find myself kind of like in between um because when we talked about on the podcast brian absolutely loved it and i was sitting right next to him i was cracking up the entire time so i relate to when christy says uh that she just felt that the movie was made for her um that the the humor was in line with with what she was wanting and the sort of commentary that it was having uh, also spoke to her. And I feel the exact same. So it's just like one of those things, like, you know, when we talked about it with uh, Cole on here, Cole, who uh, didn't really like the film at all, even though we, we were sitting here trying to explain our reasoning, but it's just like one of those things where you're just like, you know, I understand both sides, but there's just like no way that we can just kind of like, uh, flip flop or change sides on this it's just like um it's either for you or not but it's just one of those things where it uh was funny to me that the humor didn't fall flat for me i enjoyed it i enjoyed what it was trying to do but i understand uh, it just kind of fell a little loose for me at the end where it felt a bit repetitive but overall i enjoyed it but uh, it won't be one that i'm gonna put on my top of the year or anything like that but it was it was just fine no, and I, 
will say, obviously, humor and scares are two things that are very distinct for each person. There's sure. no two people that have the same exact fears or the same exact level of hysteria over certain kind of jokes. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. It, you know, I, it's a film I hate. I know it's going to be a film people love. But, man, I was just like, do something different. Do one thing different here that's not random Scottish samurai aliens. Like, I, I don't know. It was. It just tried too hard for me when it didn't have to, and then not hard enough in the moments it should have. That's more or less where I stand. Fair enough. Um, the other one is Annabelle Comes Home. Um, I still haven't seen this movie. I know it's out, playing in theaters. Uh, last week, Cole brought it up, and he declared that he wasn't a fan. So uh, just today, Cole tweeted that maybe uh, it was the low expectations for the film that have been that have people puzzling or buzzing about it. But I, I guess we could say the same thing about our future presentation too. But uh, what he saw was an amusement park ride that was far too much uh, walking to get to the destination. Uh, he sees the appeal, but was overwhelmed by the uh, results. And so I, like I said, I haven't seen the film. My wife and I have a date night coming up. Uh, July is pretty dry of titles that interest us outside of it, like Midsommar and uh, Lion King, but I'm going to, I've seen Midsommar and I'm going to see Lion King, but something that we can go see together and horror is usually actually uh, Annabelle creation was the movie that got my wife into labor. So it's just like one of those like uh, personal franchises for me that I have to go see it. And so uh, Cole turned me off of it a little bit last week, but then I read your review and uh, the, the general consensus seems to be pretty overall, pretty positive. And so I, uh, Matt, should I see this movie or not? Yeah. And I love Cole's tweet and I love Cole's reaction because <laughs> I use the same analogy and words as a positive. Like my thing about it was like, yeah, kind of feels like you're going through one of those like Halloween Horror Nights mazes at Universal. And sure, there's some walking. I do. I recognize that the story itself is a bit not lazy, but a, a bit loose, as we've said before about other movies. But at least this movie has so much fun playing in the world of monsters and it has uh, to me, at least, it has a lot of fun introducing these new spin-off worthy uh, Conjureverse characters. You know, like, there's a werewolf now in the Conjuring universe. Alright, that's awesome. That's dope. Like, the Ferryman is a really cool character. You just get all these different types of monsters slammed into one movie. And you also get the sleepover vibe where it's just three girls trying to survive the night. So, the, the, the scares for me aren't super scary. There's a great creep factor, though, that just sustains throughout. And yeah, it has a lot of fun playing, uh, you know, Graveyard Monster Bash there. Mm. Okay. It's, it's well made for sure. I mean, I, I think still, even though I wouldn't be positive on the movie overall, I still think it's important. <laughs> important. I think it's important for people should see it. So I, I think it's a great movie to go see at the movies. It's going to do huge numbers for one. I mean, when, at my screening, they showed it in the IMAX of all things. And I mean people were going absolutely nuts for it. So I think as an audience perspective, it's going to do gangbusters in terms of just how people react to it. I think I wanted a little bit more from it story-wise because The Last Annabelle did have a really good story to it. Annabelle Creation, I think it's yeah. a super solid film. Mm -hmm. But this isn't. This doesn't have that goal in mind. So I think to me to bring, say, well, it didn't have as much story as Annabelle Creation isn't necessarily fair when this filmmaker, uh, Gary Doberman, made a good movie a well-made movie it's well edited it's well paced 
um, if you can, and I don't mind a slow burn, if you can stand just, okay, well, we're going to follow this character, and now this character, and then, oh, let's go jump back to this. And I think it's it's leaps and bounds better than the first Annabelle film, but movie. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, ex- I'm down for it to make money, because I still want to see more of these. I don't know what it is, but if they announce another one, if they announce a Ferryman movie... If they announce a nun too, even though I don't like that, I'm going to get excited. The I expectations mean, and possibilities are always there. You're going to get way more of these movies. Go back and look at the box office returns on the Conjuring universe. Even La Llorona, which only made, I think, $115 million, it only cost nine. So the fact that they still made 115 off La Llorona, we're probably going to get a La Llorona too. The nun, I think it's like one of the highest grossing ones. It hit like, I, I, I'm, I think I'm right by saying it hit about $330 million. And again, we're talking like a mid-budget twenty million dollar monster movie. Honestly, like a Hammer movie too, like a Hammer film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that this Conjuring universe is just trying things. And you mentioned Gary Dauberman. Let's also reference the fact that he's written a few Conjuring universe films. This is his feature debut, and you could definitely see that he's been paying attention to the Conjuring universe filmmakers. Whether that be Juan, whether that be David S. Sandberg, who did Creation, which again is amazing. And you can see those influences come out in little spurts and then in much bigger spurts when the scares happen. I mean, there's a scare with a killer bride that is ripped right out of Insidious 1 or 2. I forget what. I think it's Insidious 2 mm-hmm. where someone's mm-hmm. pacing outside the window and it's like, oh, shit, he's doing the window thing again. So it's obvious that Dauberman has been influenced so mightily by James Wan and his entire like production company. So I'm really excited to see what he does next because he seems like the new disciple. I'm nervous about The Conjuring 3, though, because yes. that's being directed by the La Llorona director. Yes. And not that the script was that great for that movie, but it had no identity. That was just a wand ripoff. I at least feel like Dauberman made his own scary movie mm. and he had his own distinct feel to this monster universe where La Llorona was just dead, dead weight. So I would love to see Doberman actually take over the Conjuring three if that's a possibility, but I think yeah. we're already we're already far past that. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's cool to see this. I mean this is kind of at least to me this is a bit like unprecedented for these major studios to do this and create a whole universe of horror like you know like a Universal thing back in the day or something like that. But I just wish I liked it more. That's all it is. Yeah. It's kind of like, it. like you know people who. You know, we're disappointed by Marvel movies, but I'm always like, yeah, hell yeah, sure, because I don't have a lot of expectation outside of the cinematic universe. So for me, you know, something, the horror that feels dear to me, I just wish I, I loved it more. And But Gary Doberman, he he's a skilled filmmaker. That's that's the main thing to, to watch with it. And I just, you know, for me, when you watch a horror movie, I think I heard Lee Winnell say this, something along these lines, like, if you're going to do a jump scare, like, don't do a fake one. Make, like, the devil come out. And that's what they do in the Insidious movies. And so that's why, to me, you know, those are so good. And um, this, to me, felt a little uh, less than. But, you know, it's cool to see people. I mean, it's cool to see people let their guards down with something like this. Because you could critique the shit out of this. But also, why? So, I mean, I think that it's it's one of those movies that you can still tell people to go see, but also understand criticisms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unlike The Dead Don't Die, which nobody should see. (laughs) It's so bad. So bad. (laughs) So, yeah, cool. Yeah, Annabelle comes home. It's an interesting film to talk about, so I'm glad there's like some differentiating opinions. Yeah, cool. All right, uh, I guess we'll move uh, quickly through our uh, 
actual uh, bloody question of the week, and it's more inspired by Midsommar, and I've read quite a few great articles. I think, Matt, didn't, did you write one about um, daytime horror? Yeah, I did the one on Slashville. Yeah. I, I have a nice little uh, summer scary article over there, which I am copywriting, you sons of bitches. No one else can use it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. Um, so, uh, the question of the week is what's your favorite sun soaked, uh, or I guess what is some of your favorite sun soaked moments from horror movies? What, what are those movie, uh, one of those specific scenes from a horror movie that really sticks out to you that takes place, uh, during the daytime, uh, go, go for it, Matt. Sure. I will go really quickly through just a few of them. Um, one is The Hills Have Eyes. I love in the original when you get the binocular effect, or I, I forget if it's binocular or like it's a scope. Whatever it is, you just see that faraway vision. At first, it just kind of looks like the camera, and then you realize that someone's peering through an optical enhancer, mm-hmm. and it just starts getting the sense of dread of like, oh shit, someone's being watched here. Uh, and it's just broad daylight. Like they're just standing on a mountaintop, just doing their thing, creeping out people. So I like that one a lot. I also like Annabelle Creation talking about that. Mm-hmm. There's a scare in there with the nun, and there's one of the characters is in a wheelchair. She's outside. She's a small girl. Her other orphanage um, compatriots are playing to the side, and it's broad daylight. And in horror, you know that means everyone's safe. You're you're okay for now. This is fine, but not in Annabelle Creation. Because to that point, you've only been tormented at night. Then the nun comes out of nowhere, and what we see is the camera fixated on the girl in the wheelchair. We can only see the hands and basically torso of whoever's pushing her towards a barn at increasing speeds. And I love how that just ramps up the intensity of the entire movie. Because we now know that it's not just at night that we have to be afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, Valak can come out in the daytime and just wheel this girl right at the barnyard and she throws her right in. And then the poor girl, you know, she's crawling around and it's still sunny out. But I really love how that doubled the intensity of Annabelle creation. And then for the more gory side of things, I'm always going to go to Piranha 3D. <laughs> that last scene where the piranhas attack, I mean, gore can go wrong so quickly in a film that is broad daylight. Obviously, we know this. And especially around water. Because the prosthetics have to hold and they have to be adhesive despite there being liquid everywhere and not just like blood. So the fact that they staged this entire gore fest on a lake that looks so gruesome. You know, all these people are getting chewed up, their flesh is getting torn. It all looks so good. And I think that's like one of the pinnacles of like aquatic or sunny, scary gore practical effects because it's effective. It's effective as hell. There's so much blood. There's so much carnage. And it looks every bit as good that, of course, Greg Nicotero did it. Very cool. What about you, Cole? Uh, Piranha 3D is a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> creation. And it should be you know, held up to the highest honor. It's just like the best. It's so Amen. Great. It's Oh, my God. I can't wait for Cole. It's going to be so great. And he's going to oh, be yeah. in like... Or murky water, so that's going to be incredible. Um, so for me, we, Matt was talking about um, seeing REC, Reek. It's always such a strange uh, title to say. I always kind of forget the proper way. But uh, it reignited his love. And in 2009, I uh, went to a theater. And one sunny May day, 
and saw a movie that reinvigorated my life so much and has one of the best daytime scares ever. Uh, now it's driving me to hell. There's a really cool um, demon tormenting scene that takes place in the middle of the day, middle of the afternoon. Those those long sunny days that can get kind of boring can also get very scary. Uh, Sam Raimi does it, and um, it, it's it's an amazing scene. And there's shadow uses. I think there's a cat in there as well. Yeah, yep. And it, it's just it's just phenomenal, and it it's so fun. And I remember being scared at the time uh, watching it. I think I would be still at home the, the Blu-ray. The last time I watched it, it came out last year on Screen Factory, but uh, that one is the first one that pops in mind for sure. I like that one a lot. Um, I generally, whenever we uh, do our my bloody uh, questions, I find like every opportunity that I can to uh, bring up Jaws, um, which uh, Matt, I don't know if you know, but uh, Jaws was the movie like for so many people, but, uh, scared the shit out of me and I couldn't even go into my uh, grandparents swimming pool. I would always swim on the step. Uh, <laughs> it was too afraid to go out in the water cause I thought that, uh, Bruce was out there in the water. So, um, mine is, uh, without a doubt when, uh, Brody is throwing the fish guts in the, out of the orca boat, uh, not paying attention to the water and he and the audience, uh, see the shark pop up. And it was it was the first moment that I can recall uh, feeling like Daniel Kaluuya when he's fallen into the sunken place, uh, very comparable to like sleep paralysis, where you just feel like you're just cannot move. Uh, that was the moment for me um, that probably also uh, started my love for the horror genre uh, in general. But uh, that one, um, I brought this one up before when we uh, talked about. Uh, probably the most ruthless uh, stabbing sequence, but from uh, Zodiac when they're at the lake and then uh, that couple gets stabbed to death. Um, that's like probably one of my wife's greatest fears is just like somebody just, you know, when you're calm and we're, you're enjoying each other's company and then out of nowhere uh, your death comes. Um, and then the last one is uh, from Signs when the uh, Joaquin Phoenix is watching the television set and then the alien steps out. Uh, that was one of uh, the most uh, vivid jump scares that I can remember. So there we go. Um, moving on to our next uh, section, uh, our uh, My Bloody Recommendations, uh, where we uh, bring attention to some of those like uh, forgotten horror gems or just something that's like out now that's on your mind that you want to bring to people's attention. Uh, Matt, what is uh, your bloody recommendation for this week? Okay. There are two ways this can go down. Okay. I can yell a lot about demon wind because you know, that's I, I what knew I it was coming. Do, or I can give you like an actual recommendation. Uh, I'm all for uh, hearing more about demon wind. Cause I love that film. <laughs> My bloody recommendation will obviously be Demon Wind, which I have seen entirely too many times. And have you, either of you guys experienced Demon Wind yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So you know what it's about. Uh, for the listeners at home, it's available on Amazon Prime. It is available on Shudder. It is one of those so bad it's good movies that actually is tremendously good because whoever made this movie, Charles Philip Moore, I believe his name is made an evil dead 
that meets the fog ripoff that is never anywhere as coherent as it should be. The characters are stereotypes of 80s characters, even though it's a 90s movie. It makes no sense. None of it makes sense. None of it matters. Every scene happens as a just this single conscious entity that does not give a crap about the rest of the movie. And it's wild. It is one of the best movie watching experiences I've ever had in my life. I cannot say how much fun this movie is. Get your friends, watch this trash midnight cinema, just laugh the whole time at it and at what it does. I mean, there's a, one of the characters is a karate magician and he's like the badass of the group. So I don't know what things were like in the 90s, but apparently if you just roll into town dressed like a magician and can do kung fu, you are the alpha male somehow? I don't know. It's real weird. There's also some killer gore. There's demons. There's like the devil monster. There's people turning into doves. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense, and it is just the most entertaining film I've ever seen, I think. So can I ask you about the first time you saw it? Were you just sitting at home one night unsuspectedly and just like, I'm going to watch this, and then you're just like, holy so this or was did you have an agenda going into no. I, I had an agenda here because I was, I forget what I just written about Silent Night Deadly Night two I think or something <laughs> of that nature and it was for slash film and I love Jacob Hall and he loves when I just get real excited about real weird stuff so I wrote this piece about Silent Night Deadly Night two and just like my first experience with it. And Demon Wind, I think, came on Shudder not long after I wrote that article, just by basis of timing. And he kind of shot me. I forget if it was a tweet or an email, but he's like, Matt, there's a movie called Demon Wind that I'm going to need you to watch. And I think you should write about it afterwards if you like it, but I think you're going to love it. So I was like, all right, I'll give this movie a watch. We'll see what happens. And I think within the first 10 minutes, I had already pitched him an article and was like, dude, I'm writing about (laughs) Demon Wind. This is happening. And then it was actually really cool, too, because about a year after I experienced Stephen Wynn and watched that and wrote that article on Slash Film, Joe Bob Briggs did his last drive in and he did a Demon Wynn episode. I think it was a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it worked out perfectly where, like, I just got home from work. I get I put my phone down. I've got like 10 tweets that are just saying, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, Matt, Demon Wynn is coming on uh last drive in like five minutes are you watching it and like i had stuff to do that night like i was either gonna go out or like write an article or like do something productive and i was like oh hell no i just cracked like a beer i sat down ordered a pizza and just live tweeting along with that entire party of people for demon wind on the last drive in it was number one it was the first time i ever gained followers uh tweeting about demon wind so that was fun and number two the, <laughs> the communal love of like I had been thumping this film for so long, trying to get as many people to watch it. And, you know, they would trickle in and like my friends would be like, holy crap, I watched it. This is insane. But getting everyone at that single moment to like get on the Demon Wind bandwagon and be part of that. Oh, it was it was fun, man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's what it's all about, man. That's what it's all about. Bringing bringing people together with these fucked up, depraved incoherent movies but you know we can always at least say the artwork is incredible i mean that, that blu-ray that they have i think vinegar syndrome put it out yeah, yeah. Demon oh, uh, oh yeah i have that and i have the glow in the dark poster sweet i mean it, it's incredible it's one of the best looking slip covers uh on the on the market in my opinion for horror movies so that is an incredible movie incredible 
So yes, Demon Wind is my pick. Hell yeah. What about you, Cole? Oh, okay. Well, let me let me follow that up. Let me wind up real quick. Uh, <laughs> so I was I like to provide a little context. I think with these kind of movies, I think it's in vogue, and I think necessary to talk about where you were at the time. You know, these movies, they have a history and there's a reason why, you know, they stick out in our minds and all these posters. So there was a poster I saw, it's like neon purplish poster I saw when I was a kid um, in the mid nineties. And it was for a poster that really just shocked me. And I saw the film. Um, I think I was terrified just by the, the whole vibe of it because Back in those days, you know, Tales from the Crypt was really big, and I would be watching HBO and flipping the channels, and holy shit, there's the Crypt Keeper, my heart races. I get, you know, um, very excited. You know, the, the word isn't aroused, but that feeling, the hairs come up on the back of my neck. Um, and this was a poster that made me do that every time I was at the video store. And the, the movie is a movie that people, I think, hate, but I uh, rewatched it a couple nights ago, and it really coincides with um, our topic, main topic here in a second, and... Um, it's uh, Thinner, which is a Stephen King short story, or story, novel, excuse me. Um, the movie is really short, is what I meant to say, but it's it's really good, and I bought it for five bucks on iTunes, and, you know, it's it's directed by Tom Holland, who did the original uh, Child's Play, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a cool little chiller of a movie. Uh, this, this actor, Robert John Burke, who you would see, you would recognize him if you saw him uh, in other stuff. I think he was in Black Klansman, uh, lately but he's in this fat suit and he gets cursed um this isn't politically correct at all but he gets cursed by a gypsy and it's this really crazy uh story about how he's just like losing weight and it's a moral tale essentially it's kind of quirky kind of goofy but it has a cool campy lead performance and it's kind of weird to say this as a compliment to a movie but there's something about these mid-budget studio movies of this era i believe universal released it um from 1996 they have this like really flat photography that is so, you know, it, it just reminds me of that that time in my life where I didn't realize that movies could do certain things, you know, with camera, with editing, all these things like that. And you, you just kind of take these movies at face value. This movie is essentially like a Tales from the Crypt episode, but it has some cool um, dark human, dark elements of humanity that Stephen King puts in his in his work that I think still shines through in this movie. It's definitely not Tom Holland's best movie. You know, I guess the three that I know of his are this, Fright Night, and Child's Play. But I, I don't know if it's a deep cut, but I do like it, you know, for those, like, looking for these, you know, King adaptations that uh, may not be as popular. And I, I think it has merit just based on that uh, fact alone. And I, I like the, the acting in it. <laughs> Joe Montana is in it. You know, he's in, on The Simpsons, Fat Tony. But he's in it, and it has some interesting stuff about curses and about trying to atone. And then it has a nice little, um, twilight zone ending. Um, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but I, I still think that it's committed to what it's doing. And that, and that to me is, is enough. And it, it's all story, you know, it, it's all story and it's that dread, you know, and to me, I dread things every day. I live my life like just dreading things. And so dreading like, Oh wow, you know, I'm losing weight. This is fantastic. Uh, to the point where you're like, holy shit, like I'm having to eat like 15,000 calories a day and I'm eating like a pig and I'm alienating my family um, because of this and, you know, this addiction, this problem that I have. And, you know, to me, it, it really tackles and, and, you know, captures this feeling of anxiety. You know, if you look deep on the surface, it's a silly, stupid 
little 90s, uh, inconsequential 90-minute movie. But I think for me, as somebody who has really gotten into Stephen King adaptations and diving into those um, on a more uh, thoughtful level, I, uh, I think this is a really solid uh, addition. And it's, you know, if you're into spending five bucks on a movie, I don't think it's ever out on Blu-ray. And it probably just has a DVD release. So maybe a little difficult to see it, but... I still think it's worth uh, at least looking up for the poster alone. I, I really liked it a lot. Um, so yeah, that was uh, thinner from '96. Cool. All of that, and you didn't mention the blood pie. <laughs> I, well, I didn't <laughs> want to spoil it. I didn't want to. No, it. there's a blood pie in it. It's, it's, it's a movie from 1995. People should know there's a blood pie in it. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a blood pie, and there's. Uh, we don't have to say what it, it does, but there is okay. a, a blood pie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like it. Do y'all like it? Do y'all think it's a piece of shit? Uh, I just have to watch it again. Sure. I, I feel like I did, I did. I certainly didn't hate it. It was just one of those movies, like you said, that kind of came and went for me. So I, I would have to give that one another try. Totally. Yeah, it's just something to me, at least, that it's very much like my thing. So I kind of, um, you know, I've kind of jumped to it. So, I mean, if anybody knows me and has heard me or read any of my stuff, you know, I guess you know me to my taste to a certain extent. So, I mean, you can, you know, do with that what you will. Kind of what you will. So. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, uh, mine is going to be uh, not necessarily a movie, but it's going to be the extras that it come with the movie. So that is uh, a movie that uh, Cole brought to my attention um, a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, when uh, Shout Factory announced that they were going to be putting out the green inferno uh which i i didn't see in theaters i remember it coming out and then seeing the trailer and it being a big deal but um i never saw it i've seen cannibal holocaust and things like that which the film's based on but uh, i never saw a uh, green inferno but uh i watched the movie and i th- uh, it was okay but um i was more enamored with uh the the extras uh specifically with the way that uh, Eli Roth can uh, talk about his film. Um, I know a lot of people um, don't really like a lot of his work outside of like maybe uh, the Hostel films and uh, Cabin Fever, but he reminds me a lot of uh, Kevin Smith in the way that he he really knows how to talk about his films. Uh, he can really make it sound more interesting than they really are. Um so uh, I really get down with like his audio commentaries and his interviews and specifically with the interview for Green Inferno that you can find on the Shout Factory disc. Uh, they just put out a collector's, uh, really awesome uh, collector's uh, disc of the film. Um, and uh, he gets into it like all these like great stories. I really feel like I'm just like sitting down for uh, one of my college courses, like Harry Benshoff that we were talking about earlier, where he uh, just really gets you into uh, the creative side of horror filmmaking and like just how much, even if the the end result isn't what you want it to be, like just all that passion that they had going into it and just like kind of the funny stories that happen along the way uh, with the making of uh, Green Inferno. They were scouting uh locations like different villages in south america where they could uh set this uh cannibalistic uh tribe story where these uh activists uh go into uh, a south american tribe and um 
the the joke or the thing that kind of got uh, Eli Roth to make the movie was him just saying, "Hey, what if I made a cannibal movie where the cannibals got uh, really stoned and then they just got a bad case of the munchies?" But um, what really got me into uh, um, wanting to like check out the film again after I watched it and then watched the extras uh, was him talking about. Uh, these group of uh, Christian missionaries that came to uh, came to the movie set, but the th- the thing is, is, they didn't think it was a movie set. They came uh, sailing uh, up the river, and then they saw the movie set. Which, if you've seen the movie, there's uh, all these spears with like skulls on them, and so they really thought that they came across like this cannibalistic tribe, and so they were like. Uh, singing all these uh, religious songs and until uh, Eli Roth came out there with a couple of producers, just like, whoa, 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 we're just doing a movie here. We're just doing a movie. And then just kind of getting into like all the little stories, like such as the village uh, that they shot at. Uh, they wanted to get permission. They wanted to be able to use uh, the people, the inhabitants of the village and so they needed to bring them on board and get them under to understand what they were trying to go for. And uh, because of where they they live, they have never seen a movie in their lives. And so uh, the producers put together uh, this screening for uh, the tribe and or for the village. And um, so Eli Roth like calls in and says, "Oh yeah, would y'all show them? Y'all show them like uh, ET or uh, something like that?" And like, no, we showed them a Cannibal Holocaust. They thought it was hilarious, and uh, I it was just funny, like him just breaking down, like uh, that the this this uh, village just thought it was hilarious, and they felt that it was important to show that film because they didn't want to show them ET and then then be like, oh well, we're trying to make like a sweet. Uh, family film but no that's not what they were going for so they got on board right away and just like hearing all the little stories about the kids in the village and how uh, they contributed like all these like creative ideas to the film such as like dangling a live snake over the actors as they're in a cage and then saying oh uh, well Eli Roth is like uh, can they can are they poisonous can they bite them it's like uh yeah well we can flip them around and so they're just like all these little things all these like situations that they put the actors in um was just really fascinating so um i don't know i just feel like watching a lot of the extras especially the extras that shout factory's kind of been putting out lately um they're they've been better produced uh because sometimes and i totally understand just uh, circumstances um They'll say, hey, we're going to do a Skype interview, and then they'll just like uh, take that Skype interview and throw it into the mix. But for here, that they, they flew around, got set up like really good shots, and got them to like talk at length more than just five minutes. And the feeling of, you know, producers putting a knife in your side, and then they couldn't really just tell uh, the audience how they felt during the production. So it's just like just super honest and enjoyable so uh i recommend uh picking up uh the green inferno shout factory disc and watching the extras uh and there's more than just interviews with uh eli roth there's with the the cast members uh it comes with like an exclusive original cd soundtrack and um behind the scenes footage which um as somebody who edits footage or who did edit footage for a living, uh, I find this stuff kind of interesting. Uh, I really enjoyed the one for uh, Urban Legend, 
and I talked to Cole about it because uh, you get to see like how actors like react on the set more than just like you know behind the scenes featurettes where they show a little bit and then they have them talking over it and then they'll probably cut out the juiciest parts but just to an urban legend to see uh, somebody like Catherine Heigl who's pretty notorious for being a very difficult actor to work with uh, just say like how she feels on set like oh my god I don't want to do that so just to kind of get those like little moments that just feel so true um, even though it could probably bored a lot of general audience members I really find it fascinating so they just have a lot of cool stuff like that making of featurettes uh, you know the works the trailers TV spots still galleries that sort of thing so uh, yeah, Green Inferno, the special features for that is my and, recommendation. And you know I'm sitting within an arm's length of my Screen Factory collection right now. So, um, yeah, that Urban Legend disc is incredible, and I can't wait to dive into Green Inferno. I love that movie. I know people don't, but I, I think it's just so offensive and, and wonderful and doesn't give a fuck. And I like yeah. most of Eli Roth's movies. Um, to a certain extent, one way or another anyway. So I, I think people should really like it. I think it's a bit underrated movie. I, I love it. So yeah. that's really yeah, cool. I, I, I was standing it when it came out, too. I, I, yeah. I'm yeah. on board with you guys. So we're three in agreement on uh, Eli Roth's, or at least most agreement on The Green Inferno. Yeah. We well, need to get to our uh, main feature of the week. Uh, I've been dying to talk about this uh, with you guys just because – uh, yeah, like I mentioned, we've been talking about it like every damn episode, and the fact that uh, at least Cole and I we didn't get to we didn't get invited to a screening because they didn't screen it for us out here. Um, but Matt, you got to see it early, and then uh, Cole and I both have read your review and talked in, uh, privately about how you just kind of we're probably all on the same page here because we both were just very amazed with. Uh, how you articulated it and uh, just kind of captured exactly how we were feeling and like all those little uh, nuances and quote nuances in the movie, just like those little subtle moments such as, uh, you know, the beginning with uh, the lightning strikes paying homage to the original poster and stuff like that. Uh, it was just very, uh, very detailed. So uh, I guess I'm just going to, really uh, be uh, kissing your feet right here for the moment just saying i feel like your review is the ultimate review and uh that, that's the end of the podcast yeah i mean i can just read my <laughs> review out loud and that'll be the podcast we can just go through there yeah all right well thank you i appreciate that i was yeah. you know it, yeah, it was good. i don't know if you know how much like the child's play franchise means to me so this was a very interesting movie to walk into because half of me is so worried that this version of Chucky becomes the prominent one in focus right. now because obviously Don Mancini is still working on his television television show. Mm -hmm. He still has Brad Dourif involved. I'm assuming that brings with it the rest of the cast, including Jennifer Tilly. That is the Chucky that I am committed to. And honest to God, I don't think there's a bad movie in that franchise. Obviously three and seed are the outliers, but like I still think seed has a lot of talking about LGBTQ horror. I mean, that is one of the foremost examples of how to work those themes into a horror movie. It does get campy. It does get ridiculous, but I love where, you know, Mancini just kind of goes for broke and three again, it's, it's fine. Three is the most right. fine of them all, but still that's a horror franchise that's been running for almost, or no, sorry for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. You look at these other franchises like Friday the 13th, uh, 
uh, any one of them. I don't even need to name anymore because basically every horror franchise has been reborn in some way. And Child's Play was surviving. Through every film, Chucky was evolving. It was always the same Chucky. And Don Mancini was finding these amazing ways to keep that fresh. I am happy the reboot does its own thing 100%. Because Don Mancini's version and this version from Lars Kleppberg, they are two different entities that have nothing to do with one another and they can live together. Here's the issue, though. I'm just worried that everyone forgets about Mancini's version and all the newer generations just flock to this one. That's why this movie was so weird. And that's why I can stand here and say, well, they did everything right as a remake and they did everything I wanted to see and they made something completely separate. But the film itself, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was either bored or curious that I was watching a horror movie at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. I, Man, the, the Child's Play franchise means so much to me as well. It was my first nightmare. I remember this nightmare to the day. Open up my pantry and there was Chucky spinning his head around fucking with me and it was great and horrifying. And there, there really isn't a bad movie in the franchise. I mean, Seed is really, I mean, it gets a lot of crap, but it is good. And it has a lot of fun if you like that tone. And I like Mancini's tone. So, and even the the two uh, most recent ones, uh, Six and Seven, Curse and Cult, super solid. So this is cool that it does do its own thing. But, it, you know, for me, it, the, it never could figure out a tone. And that's what you need is a tone. And you need to establish a precedent with the character and, you know, not only is you have Mark Hamill, you have Brian Tyree Henry, you have Aubrey Plaza, and you have uh, a kid actor who is actually pretty good. But what they did with it was, you know, it's this, you know, Siri, Alexa, for the, the Internet of Things era, or, you know, but it is essentially, it just could not handle the comedy elements and it couldn't. It couldn't handle the horror elements, you know. It just kind of, it just kind of went for cheap laughs, and I just felt like none of those really landed. And and to me, to you know, there's there's one thing that I want to get into where there's who Andy he has to um, hide a certain package that Chucky's left for him. Really cool and really fun, and the visuals really cool. And they try to go somewhere with it, but then the film doesn't take that same tone and run with it. Um, and to me, you know, the look of the Chucky doll, um, it kind of felt like he got his life together and was like shopping at the Gap or something like that. It just felt like this very like baby Gap version of Chucky. Like, and you know, there was just no real menace to that. And it, it is cool that it did its own thing, but why even? You know, I think a lot of people have said this. Why even call it Child's Play? Other than, of course, you get the IP with it. So. It was, um, I hope that we can just move on from it because I can just be like, you know, after this, after this conversation, I feel like I can just move on and just say, okay, I have my, my awesome Chucky box set and then I'm going to have a Mancini TV show. I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm okay to ignore this. This doesn't sully the, the Chucky name because it's, it's different. And I, I don't know if people are going to, I mean, there was a lot of kids actually at my public screening. There was a ton. It was mainly kids with like their moms and dad. So I was going to say, I saw a lot of tweets from people being like, I don't know if I went into the right movie, but I see a lot of parents and children in this. And like tweets being like, do they know this is a horror movie or, you know, how is this going to work? Because I think this is the more kid friendly version. I agree with you. Sure. This is the version that is playing to a, a, a younger demographic versus, you know, 
the much scarier Chucky that you alluded to that kind of looks like Frankenstein that's all stitch up. And I'll agree with you. Chucky was my first nightmare too. And Chucky was, that was the first string of horror movies I couldn't watch. I would see Chucky and I would just, I would just shut down. That was paralyzing fear. I don't know why, but that was mine. And I totally get you that I hope we can just shut down from this one and not think about it. But here's the other thing. It has a lot of appreciators. I was curious to see all the positive takes on this film, mm-hmm. and I was curious to see who was coming out with them. So it's going to have champions. Also, it made over its projection in the box office. Yeah, it I mean, did. This is, a, this is a film that I don't know if it could break $100 million. What did it do opening weekend? 20? 18? Yeah, yeah, I think it was like 18, 20. Something yeah. Like so I don't know if it's going to have enough steam to make it to that level of is this enough to signify a sequel, but I mean, we know it's probably in MGM's mind. We know that Clevberg's talked about it already and he wants to do a sequel and he has an idea with it. And frankly, I'd kind of want to see a sequel because everything that's interesting about this child's play movie doesn't come to fruition. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I mean, is this like a spoiler podcast? Are we allowed to like drop little details or yeah, we should. Yeah. I think at this point we can. Okay. So, I mean, for me, the most interesting aspect of all of this is, okay. So the voodoo has gone. There is no murderer. This is just a robot Chucky. We are here and he's a smart device and he can connect to Kazlan Industries' vast array of smart devices. You know, your thermometer is a Kazlan Corporation thermometer. Your smartphone, your, I think, like speakers, lights, everything. So Chucky can control everything. And that means also controlling the Buddy version 2 dolls, which come in a Different variety of looks. So Chucky, the red-haired one, the ginger that gets made fun of at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> he's the version one. The version two comes in a bear form. There, are, There's like a blonde version. There's all different kinds of versions. Yet in the film's climactic act three, which should have thrown everything at the viewers, all we get are two of the bear version coming to attack, and that's it. Like I'm expecting this like Chucky apocalypse. Like – Chucky wants to kill everyone, and he doesn't use any of the assets that he has around him. He's in this supermarket or this like uh, department store, and he could have controlled maybe a hundred of those dolls. Mm-hmm. He could have controlled many more of those drones that he did control, and that's what he attacks people with. It's just such a missed opportunity, and I'm sitting there going, like, you have this massive potential to take your act three to a level that might have even saved the movie for me. But you didn't. And instead, again, you just hope that this movie's going to work. A lot of studio movies do this. You hope the first works, and it teases what might come in the sequel, and people go, ooh, I really want to see a sequel now. Like, no, kind of, fuck you. Give us everything that we should get in a single movie, and that's what's going to get us excited about the like the lengths you're willing to go in the sequel. So I think that's the biggest problem for me outside of the puppeteering as well, which we can get into. But like, I just feel like this movie never realized the potential it had. The beginning is kind of funny when it's Andy teaching Chucky to become a person, I guess we can even say. He's developing Chucky. Chucky has a conscience. It's not an evil and good switch. Chucky's tampered AI. He just doesn't have the safeguard. He still learns as a AI doll. So you get a little bit of that funny aspect. But again, Half the humor didn't land. It was really clunky. And uh, the, the puppeteering for me, I thought was god awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Doesn't he learn to kill by watching uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2? Yep. <laughs> and, and that what they yeah. were watching. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a cool reference, sure. But and I think one of the kids had like a Killer Clowns from Outer Space poster or something like yep. that as well, it's which was cool. Har- I was going to say, it's made by horror fans, obviously. Cool. It's made by people who appreciate sure. it. Because there were a few in there. It was like Killer Clowns. Like, like there's like a popcorn poster. I don't know. There were a few different posters. Yeah. There was something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the puppeteering, I mean, it's amazing to look back on the first one um, at the, like the babysitter scene where Chucky finally reveals himself in the first one and how that, that scene still slays. I mean, it's still incredible. And the way that the, you know, everything is moved And I don't know if they used uh, the actor in that scene, but even so it, it, it plays tricks on you. This right here, I, I didn't feel that. <laughs> I didn't feel that. And I shouldn't laugh when I'm thinking about Chucky sitting in a cubby. That should scare the shit out of me and to some degree. Um, and, and, you know, with that being said, I, I just think that, you know, it, it, I don't know. It's just so frustrating to see, you know, I'm open to interpretations, but I just don't think that this is going to be. I mean, so I hate to say not my Chucky, but it's just not. And, and, and I think it has to do with the movement as well. You know, that's what makes the character. And, um, I mean, why not give Mark Hamill a better voice, you know, to do? I mean, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know yeah. why that. So angelic in a way. Well, I was going to say the voice that Hamill does, they're just playing the innocent tone the whole time. Mm-hmm. You never get like an angry Chucky. You never get the quote unquote evil Chucky. It's just Chucky the whole time and I think that's what they thought would be disturbing. The soft voice Mark Hamill singing the buddy song and stuff like that. But he's also killed people. And I get that. And I think part of the worry is that when you cast Mark Hamill, everyone's like, oh, he's just gonna do his Joker voice again. <laughs> After sure. watching this film, mm-hmm. I wish he did bring more of that Joker voice mm-hmm. because we didn't get the laugh. We didn't get the menace. We didn't get any of that. We just got, you know, bye bye like shit like that and like that's the scariest it got and i say scary in the fact that it wasn't scary right preston did you uh, agree with all of this yeah sorry we're just totally just (laughs) taking no no i know he he, he's good about he's a good listener so i know he's gonna like come in with like a hammer throw or something like that so i mean you saw it a couple days ago and i tried so hard to like shield (laughs) what i thought about it to you not that it matters but it's still fun not to not to know but did you Oh, more or less. Um, I think just I don't know what I wanted it to be. I I think just like you guys said that I appreciate that it tried to do something different at, at least because it's kind of like Toy Story four. It's already made. It's already in the bag. So you kind of got to get over that uh, fact that it's here already. And so I just got over that hump and then just kind of went in, but just like right from the get go, especially when you figure out like, cause the biggest lingering question for me was, Oh, so, uh, he's not, there's no voodoo. Um, like how are, how is he going to become, is it going to be like small soldiers where there's like, and actually the movie very much resembles, uh, small soldiers, even down to when Chucky gives himself his name and is talking to, his quote buddy uh andy uh he says uh andy says my name's andy sup and in uh small soldiers the kid's name is alan and he said when he's talking to uh archer the gorgonite uh very deep cut here um he uh no no I'm with, i love small soldiers he uh says uh my name uh my name's Alan now shut up and he says uh, greetings now uh Alan now shut up 
So it's like kind of going along with that, the, the sort of thing that I was expecting, uh, especially when I found out that Chucky was going to be uh, this uh, robot and it was going to have uh, the whole Alexa kind of feel to it and a technology, Age of Ultron, that sort of thing. Um, so just from the get-go of this overworked South Asian worker who is pissed off at his boss uh, deletes the code, commits suicide, and then releases this uh, demon into the world. Um, like right from there, I just kind of knew that it was oh, this is just going to be a very silly, be a very silly movie, um, which I was kind of hoping for anyway, just because um, I didn't want to have a dark and gritty version of uh, child's play something like the the remake of nightmare on elm street i didn't want that but uh i i still wanted like some of that build up proper build up or something or more fascinating build up to be there um because the the commentary of the film of just uh violence in in this case violence in horror movies causes people to kill each other um it just drove me mad and so uh why can't it be something more interesting like uh just a couple weeks ago i brought up funny games like that sort of like weirdness to uh make the commentary a little more interesting versus something that's kind of like a an overdone concept at this point but I didn't find it very funny um I do think that Mark Hamill did the best that he could kind of uh, I don't remember if you said it, Matt, or if somebody else did, that it kind of is uh, in between being Bert and Ernie on Sesame Street. Um, so um, I think he did the best that he could, but it's kind of like uh, uh, David Harbour and Hellboy, where like the rest is uh, a disaster to me, and but I, I champion uh, what he tries to bring to it. it he just didn't have that... Uh, that platform to kind of run wild in the way that I really wanted him to. And so, um, I, I think I may be alone in thinking that I didn't think that the kid, the main kid, uh, Gabriel Bateman was too terribly good. Um, I think he does a fine job in certain, certain parts, but I think the introduction to him, uh, had me, uh, thinking back to, uh, better watch out. Um, there's a specific scene in that movie that drives me absolutely nuts that I know Cole knows, uh, what I'm talking about. Um, and it just feels kind of artificial. Like they're really trying to just, you know, just play dress up and, uh, paint a character, but it didn't feel authentic to me. And I didn't, I didn't care for the relationship that he had with his mother played by Aubrey Plaza. Um, uh, there's just like all of these artificial moments all throughout the film. And so nothing really rang true to me, even when, um, uh, Brian T, uh, uh, Brian, Brian Tyree Henry, Henry, uh, had like his scene after the, the first kill or big kill of the movie, which was a good kill, but it, yeah, it just felt out of place. It like existed on its own, which is just, you know, uh, jerk dad or boyfriend character taking down the lights at his family's house and then uh, falling down, breaking his legs and then getting killed by a lawnmower um, or a tiller. And um, 
Brian saying, oh, watermelon patch, uh, uh, how poetic. So there's just like all a these. White guy, a white guy dying in a watermelon patch, yeah, that's, how that, poetic, that, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just really didn't get into it. I think immediately after I walked out of the theater, I wanted to forget it. But I, I, I do have to say, like, I wasn't, like, in, super bored by it, but it just kind of frustrated me all throughout. Yeah, and I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the characters and especially the, you know, douchebag stepfather or, sorry, stepboyfriend character. Right. Because every one of these actors is playing a caricature. They're not yeah. well fleshed out characters, you know, the boyfriend, especially he's just there to be an asshole yeah. and every bit of dickishness is played up. Like, like Andy comes home from a school or something and he walks in the door and like his mom is like, Oh, we're going to order pizza. And like the he- douchebag stepfather or step boyfriend comes sauntering in, like still buttoning his pants up right after sex. And he just looks at Andy. He's like, yeah, like I basically, I just did your mom. What's up. Yeah. And it's like, all right you really have to play up the fact that he's a monster. And I also felt oddly, I don't know. They make every male in this film, a monster except Brian Tyree Henry. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I'm not out here advocating for males and stuff like that, but it just kind of took away from the fact that like, all right, I get that Chucky's starts out only killing bad people, but like, then he doesn't the rest of the film. So again, like they try to do these themes. They have these terrible male, you know, perverts, cheaters, um, everything under the sun. They are just not good dudes. And they're the ones who get off first. And you're kind of like, all right, is there going to be like a justice paid to this kind of arc? And then again, they just divert after that and they kill an innocent. And it's kind of like, all right, so you didn't think about that. You just were in the aesthetic moment there and that's it. And and again, that's kind of child's play. It just kind of runs through the motions of this will be cool right now and let's do this. Yay. But let's not think about how it's going to pay the larger story. And, you know, we mentioned the puppeteering before. Also, just want to bring up the CGI, which is really bad, because as yeah. Cole, I think, alluded to before, the old films that Mancini worked on, not only were they done very well with the puppetry and you watch them and, you know, the words mouth or the words match Chucky's mouth completely. Mm-hmm. Chucky comes to life. The way he moves is human. In this one, I know the new Chucky is robotic, but it looks like they can only do so many motions with the doll itself and it's like a super up close cut so you like know there's like a hand under him or something like that it just isn't framed right it's not played in the right way and i know maybe that's supposed to play into the humor factor but then you get to the cgi the fact that the old chucky movies used a real actor and i think an actress later too in in um the sequels but chucky moves around and you get these aerial shots of chucky just walking as a person and i get that that's because he's the voodoo chucky and i get that's because he has a human soul but that's what made him scary mm-hmm. this new one he moves around like a robot then he cuts to cgi and all of a sudden he's like this little ninja chucky who can run and jump and do stuff like that and you're just like the contrast is horrible it's horrible it's a horrible contrast that they don't think about and again having something this slapdash it just kind of the words don't even match the mouth that's moving. And especially when it gets chaotic, it's just a joke. And again, for that, it's so hard not to compare. It's so hard not to look at Mancini's and the other directors. I shouldn't just say, you know, Mancini's been the producer, writer, etc., and he directed a few of them. But other people did direct the other films, and they all pulled this off. So it's not like this is just one person. 
no, like a bunch of people pulled off the, the, these kind of Chuckies, and this new version just doesn't. And I read an interview that didn't really impress me with Kleberg. It was pretty basic. Like he kind of dropped in an interview that he didn't realize that Brad Dourif had such a, a following for his voice as Chucky. And you know, he's the guy who's like, oh yeah, I love Chucky, of course. I'm going to make a Chucky remake, and like I've watched all the films. I, they're so important to me. But then he answers a question later on. He's like, I didn't know people were so like passionate about Brad Dourif being the voice of Chucky. And I'm like, how the fuck do you not know that if you think like this movie's the greatest thing under the sun? So I kind of got the vibe that maybe Cleverberg was kind of playing up the fact of how much he really even likes horror movies. He had other answers later on that it makes sense for what I saw. And I'm not trying to call people out on that, but like, that's why I read interviews. Sometimes I want to know what they're into. I want to know the mindset they're coming from. And so when you have a guy saying like, Oh, my favorite movies or horror movies are like, you know, here's the three most basic bitch answers. I don't want to sound like a snob, but if I have a guy that's rebooting one of the greatest horror franchises that we have running, even I kind of want it to be pretty into the horror genre and know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm not saying that was a thing. I, I am saying that the interviews did not impress me and nor did the film. And it, I think those kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, totally confused and frustrating to me is, is the biggest thing to say. Summing it up because I mean, like you, I mean, you said there's been a lot of other filmmakers. I mean, I think Matt and I, I don't want to, Assume, but I think our favorite, if not one of our top favorites, is Bride of Chucky. Yep. Which I think Ronnie Wu directed that movie. Absolutely, Ronnie. Ronnie Wu. He is brilliant. It's fucking hilarious and pretty freaky in certain moments and expands the universe and all that cool stuff. But you know, it's not like it's it's not like when you say like if you're gonna take like a Buffy movie, it has to be Joss Whedon writing it. It doesn't have to be that. But so there are been different filmmakers taking it over and so you have the, the proof there that you can do it and do it good you know outside of that so that's what it's like you know it just feels like a i hate to sound sound like like such a fan but like it feels like a kind of a slap in the face and it's yeah. kind of strange to actually feel that way um it's kind of a rare thing so that's why this movie was such a big deal coming out it's 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 kind of crazy i'm, I'm glad it's i'm glad it's gone so but, uh, you know, I, I did look at the reviews, too, just now when we were talking about it. And it really is pretty mixed. But I think it just kind of has to go with, you know, this is still a niche thing. I don't think some people, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that movie with the doll from the red hair. Yeah, 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 I got that. Even critics. So, I mean, if you don't have an affinity for it, and that's fine, I think you're still going to be more, you know, drawn to it. But I think, you know, 20 years from now, oh, man, that movie was so 2019. Because the tech and everything is going to be so different rather than... You're going to say, okay, what was the first one? 1988, I think. You know, oh man, voodoo is timeless. That shit's scary. You know, that puppeteering, that shit's timeless. That's going to transcend decades. I mean, we're so far out from it anyway. That concept is, you know, it's been around for hundreds of years and scared people for reasons. So that to me is where it ultimately just like, you know, goes, you know, kaput for me. So, yeah. Uh, I also kind of want to bring up. who in their right mind would purchase a doll that looks as weird as this doll does when in 2019, if we had a talking robot type thing, it wouldn't look anything like Chucky. It would probably be more uh, like uh, Ava from uh, Wally or something like that. It just, it would not look like this at all. So (laughs) 
even that you kind of have to think that this movie exists in a universe that is not like our own at all. Like I can't imagine uh, being a little kid excited about the release of Buddy 2 when they look like they do in this film, especially after that scene, which I think they do a little too early on because it just kind of does not make uh, Chucky scary to me at all is when he's uh, sitting down with Andy and then they're uh, creating like different faces that he can make. And uh, I couldn't get that out of my mind for the rest of the movie. So it was just kind of there. And uh, so, yeah, I think Matt, you said it well with that. This movie does is not really a horror movie to, or at least in the way that we wanted it to be. It's more of like this, like dark, kind of comedy or silly comedy and with uh, moments where they, I think you said it's like more coincidence based. Um, For instance, the guy that looks like Jack Black that gets killed, uh, he brings back uh, Chucky and he should be like very thankful that that happened. But the fact is, is that he kills him even though what the hell did he really do to him outside of just, uh, beating his meat to his mom right and that's i'm glad you brought that up again chucky's whole motivation in this film is just to play with andy that is the motivation he kills anyone who gets in the way of playing with andy so again why does he murder this person he wants to kill andy's mom because andy's mom is in the way of playtime this weird creepy dude yes just jerking it to a security camera footage of her if anything, he should like him, you know, like it, that it just doesn't make sense. And then the hilarity of, I like the fact that these deaths are like saw level. They are gory. They are graphic. Mm -hmm. At least the film tried to do that. But again, why is this man's first inclination of trying to get to safety to stand on a table with a circular saw Mm -hmm. in it? It's just like, you keep watching these things, and it's one of those horror movies that my audience was just either laughing at the screen or doing that, like, oh, hell no. Like, why is he doing this? He's not yeah. thinking. And it's yeah. like, it got to the point where I'm like, yeah, I don't know why any of these characters yeah. are doing any of this. So it's, it's the moment from Austin Powers where that guy's standing in front of the steamroller. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> Exa- yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, when all he had to do was just, like, kind of, uh, well, well, for one, not get on top of that table, but uh, if he's already there, just quickly get out, get off, uh, move along the pipe before it even got hot. He just pretty much just wanted to die. Yep. Yep. And that was this movie. Everyone either just wanting to die or good God, the whole turning Andy into a psychopath and Andy leaning into it, you know, Chucky knows what he's doing. Chucky is trying to make Andy look bad. And the level that Andy just leans into it, when he's destroying the apartment because he thinks Chucky's there and he's just bashing everything that his mother owns. It's like, kid, come on. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I could go on about this movie all. Yeah. It, it, that is a really good point thinking about, because when you were saying that, I don't know if you guys know the, uh, the work of film director, Rennie Harlan, but it sounds like something he would do on set. Yes. Big Andy. Yes. Yes. More, more, more. Of course. That, yes. It's like very, you know, European sensibility in terms of like making an American movie. We got to go big. You got to show emotion, things like that. And to me, you, you can't just going big doesn't dignify, you know, the end result of that. Because 
You know, the kid is a good actor, but that's not the way that Andy, he just makes this very weird character leap because we still need the characters. That's what it's about with these yeah. movies. And so, you know, to buy that relationship, to hinge it on that, Andy is by and large pretty misanthropic, the whole movie. And that's fine. I like misanthropes, but um, they didn't do anything with that. And that is just, you know, so, so frustrating. That scene in particular, I'd forgotten about it until you brought that up and it just, you know, because, you know, it's just, that's the tone. You have, The directors, they have to strike a tone. And look, I, I don't know shit about making a tone in a movie. I'm not a filmmaker, but I know about what I'm watching. So, you know, that, that's why it, it's just, it's a shame. It's a, it's a damn shame. Well, um, you again, you can go on, uh, we got this covered, right? Yep. Uh, to find your review, you also wrote uh, a piece on Bloody Disgusting, uh, breaking down uh, Child's Play, and then uh, I, I guess that I guess that's is that all the is that all the plugs? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say yeah, and I like the bloody one too because I do just want to say like you know when I reviewed Child's Play, that was a movie review, and I very much just kept it. I didn't keep it a comparison. That was yeah. just me saying this is a film and this is how I rate it as the singular film. The one for bloody disgusting is a recurring column that I'm going to do called revenge of the remakes. And basically every month I'm just going to take a different remake and compare it to the original. And that's the one where I really dig into the fact of like, all right, dude, this was the original child's play. And this is what you gave us yeah. completely different. Also completely not the same quality. <laughs> right. Um, well, uh, Thanks again, Matt, for coming on. We really enjoyed having you. And Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And just one final plug, follow me on Donato Bomb on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Awesome. Uh, Cole, where can they find you? Well, I mean, I guess Letterboxd, man. I, I don't really review stuff on there, but I plug my diary all the time. I love that uh, thing. Uh, it's, it's really fun. I haven't even thought about plugging that. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Twitter, words by Cole. I tweet. I begrudgingly tweet i feel like it's my fiduciary duty as a film critic to have to jump in there but um you know fresh fiction you can find my reviews there and oh shoot yeah i guess that's it for now cool all right thanks again guys and uh next week on the show uh hopefully uh brian will be back because uh i've had this uh record sitting on my shelf and we got to talk about it and it's uh the buffy's uh musical episode once more with feeling uh, we got the vinyl record from Mondo, so we're going to talk about that and talk about uh, the episode uh, in general. So uh, we'll be back next week with that. But uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Child's Play in theaters now. Uh, thanks, guys.